0: Pray. Father, help me as a desperate man, a desperate teacher who endeavors to unfold difficult subjects that you have revealed in Holy Scripture. May The end result be finding our rest in the grace of Christ through faith in Christ to the ultimate joy of our heart in the work of sanctification by Your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Last week we saw the Mosaic Covenant being instituted and God giving Israel the law. We call it now the law of Moses, through Moses the mediator, or the Mosaic law. That's my subject this morning. And I have a long introduction because there's a context in which I'm going to speak. First, is that the law, God giving commandments, do this, do that, don't do this, has been, in my opinion, so misconstrued, misunderstood, and at times by the church, even vilified as something just way off for God to do. The subject of gospel of Jesus Christ and then law are they in contrast with one another? Or are they in a continuum? Is there something about them that fits just perfectly? And if so, how? That subject is one of the most difficult, I think, in the last 2,000 years of church history. Just Google gospel and law. We can say that now. Before, I would say, go to the card catalog in a theological library and look at the literature on this issue. My guess is that right now, here this morning, there is confusion over this issue. Especially when I read a text like Romans 6.14. On the one hand, quote, You are not under law, but under grace. Then on the other hand, I turn to Romans 3.31 and read, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Which one is it, Paul? First you say we're not under law, we're under grace. Then you say, by preaching faith in grace... Did we abolish the law? By no means. We've established the law. Okay. So the first step I want to take in this introduction is to say we have to understand, I think, first of all, in the New Testament, the term law is used at least in three different senses with three different meanings in their various contexts. For instance... Law in the New Testament could be used to refer to the Old Testament. In other words, all the Hebrew writings. In Romans chapter 3, verse 19, after Paul is quoting the Psalms and the prophets, he says, and thus the law condemns all. Oh, he just used the word law that way. What is he referring to? The stuff he just quoted, which was part of the whole Old Testament. Second way the word law is used, is when the speaker or the writer is referring specifically to the five books of Moses, the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, technically the law, that which was delivered by God through Moses, Mount Sinai, and during the wilderness, wandering. For instance, in Luke 24, verse 44, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he means, their law means what the text of Scripture in the first five books said. That's what he meant by law. Or Matthew 5.17, quote, I have not come to abolish the law, and the prophets in the Psalms, etc. So, that's a second meaning. Meaning, actual text of the first five books. The third way that the term law is used in the New Testament doesn't have to do with a different section of the Old Testament or something. It is the Old Testament, and with the core meaning the commandments in the Old Testament. It is the Old Testament understood in a different way. What I mean is this. By the first century, Jesus comes on the scene, then Paul. By the first century, many in Israel have twisted the law and the commandments of Moses and turned them into legalism. What I mean by that, by legalism, is that they took the book and God's precious holy law in words and severed it from its foundation of faith. They have failed to emphasize dependence on the Spirit of God in the law. And thus they took His commandments and Turn them into something they were never meant to be. A job description. Don't do this. Don't commit adultery. Tithe. Circumcise your child. Keep the Sabbath. Don't steal. Turn those lists into a job description by which you could earn blessing from God. Salvation from God. That's the context Jesus comes into when you see him so nastily angry at the Pharisees. It's the context that Paul came out of as a Pharisee when he came to faith in Christ and the same problem he had to deal with constantly throughout the rest of his life as a Christian, missionary, apostle, pastor, teacher because that same Misunderstanding of God's purpose in giving the law was not only in Judaism, it filtered over from Judaism into the early church. And Paul had to address it. And in addressing it, here was the problem. Paul did not have a special term like we do legalism. There was no special other term like legalism as opposed to the word. Law. So, when Paul would refer to this distortion of the Mosaic law of God commanding, he would use very often the term works of the law to refer to. Not what Moses intended, but the misconstruing of Moses. As if it were a job description by which you could do it and thus earn something for God. Two examples: For Galatians two sixteen, Paul says, "We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but is justified through faith in Jesus Christ." Galatians three two, Paul says to the Galatians, "Did you receive the Spirit?" by the works of the law, this legalistic approach to God, or by the hearing with faith. But he doesn't always use that whole term, works of the law. At times, he just shorthands it and uses the word law. Greek, the word namas. For instance, Romans 6.14. You are not under law, legalist, but you're under grace. and So what I want to try to show is that when Paul says that you Christian are not under law but you're under grace is that Paul does not mean we do not have to obey God's commands. He does not mean since Christian you're under grace Whether you commit adultery or not is irrelevant. Whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength or not is irrelevant. Whether you steal, murder, bear false witness, covet is irrelevant because you're not under law. That's not what he means. What he means is that you are not under the burden of understanding the law as those lists that you must do in order to win God's favor, to earn His blessing, or to earn salvation. Thank you. So whenever you read in the New Testament law, stop. Look at context. What, what, what does he mean here? How, how is that being understood by the person who spoke it or wrote it? Are they referring to that which is precious and good in God's intended meaning of the law? Or a sinful distortion of approaching the law? I think that in the back, even of some of your minds, and of evangelicalism as a whole, and I know from my own experience, is this idea, somehow, when God instituted the Mosaic Covenant and the law in Sinai, that He was offering salvation in a different way than the New Testament offers Salvation. The New Testament, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, is clear, isn't it? For by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. We know that, and that is a great summary of salvation of the gospel. And I do know that there are very few people who say, I mean within the church, that God actually saved people from their sin differently than He does today in the New Testament. But many say and imply that nevertheless the Mosaic Covenant where God commanded what He was doing, even theoretically, if no one could actually be saved by it, was offering salvation in a different way than the Gospel offers it. Virtually n- virtually no one, there are people who have, but virtually no one understands that those people before Christ in the Old Testament that were saved or justified, like Abraham, by faith, or Caleb, or Joshua, or David, that those who were justified, they all understand they were justified, just like we, that is, by faith in God's grace, and that's it. But it'll come out that the law of Moses, though, didn't teach that that was the way to be justified. But it taught something different, that if you could keep this law and merit, then you would merit, for yourself, justification by faith. But of course, no one could do that. And so what the law did is it just showed us our sin and then it drove a person, oh, woe is me, now the law will drive me to a Savior all the teaching that I got just if I put it together where was my mind in 1990 91 92 93 I became a Christian in 81 and I think the way I would summarize it and I think some of you may even right now do that it would have been something like this if I could have made a cogent statement my understanding of the law it would say something like this the mosaic law was fundamentally different than the Abrahamic covenant and the New Covenant in Christ's blood under which we live as Christians. Where the Abrahamic covenant and the New Covenant, the Gospel, offers salvation based on free grace to be received by faith apart from works The Mosaic Covenant offers salvation based on you doing those works and thus earning the salvation. You get the salvation as a reward. For works of the law. And since the law and the God of the law is perfect and since Adam as we have seen we have all been born into sin no one could do it and thus the law had that one basic function to condemn us. Period. I think that is probably the most popular view in Christianity in evangelicalism of the law of Moses the commandments of Moses if you're hearing me, that's a big if, if I'm speaking clearly, by the end of this, I really hope that will be done. I think that view is dead wrong. In that this, if God at Mount Sinai gives commands, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, and those commands are meant, go ahead and do them. And if you do them, then you would merit God's blessing. That would make Moses a legalistic Pharisee. That would cause the law of God to be the very heresy that Paul was condemning in the book of Galatians, And worst of all, especially if you've been following the theme in this series, that would cause God Himself to be His own greatest enemy. If God is the infinitely self-sufficient One, the absolute personification of power and beauty and goodness and holiness and fountain of eternal joy and life un bounded, and He creates in order to extend that glory, to glorify His name, and the only way people can glorify that name is by coming and depending on who He is for them, period. They have nothing to offer Him. They cannot do, work, act in any way that would cause God to owe them a paycheck then for God to say, here's my law, and if you do it, I will owe you, you will merit that which I now owe you, would be causing people to sin. Directly, and by the words of his mouth, beckoning us and commanding us. If that's clear. Okay. So, now, that's the introduction. What I, the way I want to go about this morning: how are we to understand, here's the title of this message, The essence of the law. What is it? First I'm going to say it in a nutshell and then I'm going to re-say it and give biblical supports for each point. Four main points. Loving other people, point number one, is what fulfills the law of Moses. Second point, that love is the outworking of saving faith. The third point is that the law, therefore, never called for meritorious works, but it always called for obedience, which flows out of saving faith. And therefore, fourth, We must, as Christians, obey the Old Testament moral commandments just like we are called to obey the New Testament moral commandments. That is, not in order to win God's favor toward us, but because we are already in and resting on His grace and His mercy. Thus, faith is there. It's already there. And thus, the life of faith, the walk of faith, the walk of obedience is constantly seeing that God's commands are the greatest thing He could give to me. I trust Him. That's called faith. So, back to the point number one. Love, loving others, fulfills the Mosaic Law. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. Owe nothing to, owe no one anything except to love each other. Here's Paul. Here's New Testament. Why, Paul? Because the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this one statement. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. End quote. Love, Paul says, does no wrong. To a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. See, for Paul to boil down the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, and all the other implications of the moral commandments, to boil it down to that one statement, he's doing nothing more than what Jesus did in Matthew 7.12 when Jesus said, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them because this is the law and the prophets. The Apostle James, in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 8, said the same thing, a little bit differently, when he said, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. The commands of God have love as their aim. Therefore, loving others, biblical, true love, manifesting itself, is the fulfilling of the law. That's point one. Or step one, probably a better way to say it. Now you got that, based on that. Here's the question. Where does that love come from? That love is the outworking of a heart of trusting God. It's called faith. Love is the fruit of faith. Now, real, biblical, genuine love will always ultimately lead to good works. Notice how I said that. Because genuine love that we're talking about here is not synonymous with the good works. It is prior to it. It's deeper than it. It enables it. Let me give you an example. If the good work of a genuine love of a person of faith is going to a homeless shelter and making plates of food and passing them to hungry people. That, you could say, is a loving act. That person is manifesting real love and fulfilling the law. But you see this outward act. Next to that person, you see a robot doing the same thing. The robot is grabbing dishes, mashed potatoes, It's programmed to do that and then handing it to this something in front of the robot that it picks up. They're doing the same act. Is the robot loving? You know he's not. can't. Love is the thing motivating that action in a person. And because that's true, that's why there are many people working for God. And even working for others. And feeding the poor who biblically, ultimately, yes, I know very precisely, are not doing it out of love. That's why the Apostle Paul could say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, if I give away all that I have, and if I sacrifice my life for another, if I... Deliver my body to be burned. But do not have love, then I am nothing. Works of love. The love that fulfills the law is not mere religious practice nor humanitarian service. Paul here says a person could die on behalf of another evidently think about every other kind of thing you could do for another, and he says, and it not be love. If that, then what the heck is love, Paul? Love is that thing which is impossible. It is literally impossible apart from regeneration, that is new birth, that is that act of the Holy Spirit coming inside to live. Initially in seed four, which produces faith. That faith that says, oh, Well you want text? First John four seven. Listen carefully to the words in the sentence. Beloved, let us love one another because love that he's talking about, love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, if we're going to be Bible people, We must be saying, hmm, there must be a sense in which the love he's talking about is not merely the good deeds and the good acts, which you did as a pagan, and which pagans or unbelievers do today. There's got to be something different, or else every time someone opened the door for you, gave you the eggs you needed to make that thing because you ran out of eggs as a next door neighbor and they don't know Christ, then evidently they are born again. Evidently they are born of God. He must mean something different. The kind of love he's talking about, he says, is the kind of love that comes only from being born of God. Where there is no... Faith, vertical, before horizontal, in God. Trust in God. Birthed by God. No heart for God. There is no true love. Love is the outworking of genuine faith. Let me give a couple key texts. There are many more, but just a few. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts, for anything, but only, or in other words, what counts for everything, including salvation, is faith. Faith. Working itself out through love. That, Where does that love come from? It comes from genuine heart for God. His promises in the Gospel of Christ. I love Him. And that births faith. If you jump down a few verses in chapter 5 of Galatians to verse 22, you all know this, you all be able to fill in the blank. For the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy peace. Love. Where does that come from? By the work of God. The Holy Spirit dwelling in a believer. So then, then how do we love? Do we do anything? We wake up. What does that mean? How shall I then live. In Galatians 3 verse 5, Paul says this, Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does He do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question. In other words, the answer is implied clearly. Paul is saying, Christian, the life, the daily life of sanctification, the way you live, is never by the works of the law. It's never with an attitude, I guess I better do this or do that, to be in God's good graces today. It is by responding to His commands and His promises in the precious Gospel constantly with a heart of faith by the hearing of God with faith. He's saying the path upon which the Holy Spirit is operating, working, in the Christian is along the path of the Christian's trusting, that is, faith, trusting in God's promises written in Holy Scripture. Therefore, love, this love, is the fruit of the Spirit and it is, and you can't separate these, it is the outworking, in other words, of faith, which is being and constantly being birthed by that same Spirit. So in First Timothy, chapter 1, verse 5, Paul put it this way. The goal, the aim of our instruction, what is it, Paul? The goal is love. Why are you preaching Christ, Paul? The goal ultimately is this outflow of love that issues from, hear it? Love is coming from somewhere that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Only genuine faith is going to produce this kind of love. Now, I'm going to turn, you may turn or listen to, depending on how we hear it, today and tomorrow and the next day and constantly, we may have different responses. Paul here defines in a nutshell love to us real, broken, sinful, horrid people as Christians at times. Verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind love does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude it does not insist on its own way it is not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but it rejoices with the truth love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So to spare you, I will use my life as an example. This is real nitty-gritty of this sermon right now. Okay, what gets get practical? Here's practicality, and this is the truth, and this isn't an overstatement. I wake up every morning, and with inside of me, not someone who's not Joe. It's Joe. It's called Joe's flesh. That word flesh in the New Testament, the way Paul used it, means my sinful nature, which still dwells within me, even if I am a true Christian, even if the Holy Spirit, God Himself, has also come now to dwell in me and thus caused a battle. Here's the thing Am I a Christian? Do I have faith? Joe, you're, you're arguing. You argued in that sermon last Sunday that if you have faith, it issues forth in love, which is patient and kind. And When I wake up, with inside of me, my flesh hears 1 Corinthians 13.4 and it hates it. It abhors this idea. That flesh can only do that, and it constantly is saying to my conscious mind, which is going to cause me to will and to act, "Yuck!" My flesh is telling me the world should serve your needs. Period. Not love is patient and kind, and I don't feel kind if you're irritable. I feel a million miles away from God. I, I don't have time for other people. What about my future the next four hours? So what do we do? What is the Christian life? Like, <laughs> It is fight. The fight of faith. What do I mean? Since I know that, since it's welling up with me, and that's why Bible... Theology, understanding the gospel and justification and sanctification and the fight of faith is so important because now it informs me on what do you do, Joe? You get your face in the promises of God. Prayerfully, you say, God, I'm a yucky, disgusting sinner, and if you let me go even today, 30 years down the line of my Christianity, I'm hopeless. I can't love. I will be sinning all over everybody. Please let your spirit come and cause my heart to come alive to the truth of your promises. Like, just to give you an example. You read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. God says this, and he says it to Joe when he's getting out of bed. And the question to Joe every day is, do you, this is what faith is, do you trust what God says when he says, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Well, there's a starting ground. Father, You said You would never leave me nor forsake me. That means You're here now to cause the work of Your Spirit to supersede the temptations and the grumpiness and the irritability and the selfishness of my flesh. And so God, I'm asking You to do that right now. Well, let me turn to a a larger text, to Matthew, if you would. If Turn to Matthew 7. And listen to the structure of this, the way Jesus said it. Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12. Note, the end, the goal here is verse 12, when Jesus says, I'll quote it first, Jesus says, So, oh, that so is the Greek word un, which means therefore. We're going to go back and read why He says this. In other words, because of what He said before this, and when this is real in your life on Tuesday morning, therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And so you guys say, wow, okay, that's what I want. When I don't feel any genuine love, all I feel is selfishness and sin in me, what do I do? Okay, we go back and we read, starting with verse 7, That's the key to verse 12. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you for everyone whose ask receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Will you do that with Justin, Matthew, or Michael, Joe? No. Or if he asks for fish, will you give him a snake? Listen to Jesus' words. No, I wouldn't do that. If you then, Joe who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Therefore, 25 minutes later, an hour later, of prayer. Therefore, now go to work. Go to homeschooling. Go shopping. Go call that friend. Therefore, now whatever you would wish another to do for you, do to them. In other words, here's here's a structure of of this Christian life that Jesus is saying. When we still our hearts on promises. Knock, seek, ask, and it will be given what you need. When we still our hearts on God's got my future in His hands, meaning the next four hours, the next 40 years, God's future, His bright, sovereign, fatherly, caretaking future, He promised it. Oh, my heart now is in a state of faith. I'm resting in it. When that happens, now we can love again today or for the next hour. Because now I don't feel as grumpy, as irritable, as fearful, as anxious as I did 20 minutes ago. Because I don't feel like if I love and spend time or money or thought, anything else, I'm going to lose out. Oh, no, I won't. God just promised me I'll never lose out. I've asked Him. And He says to me, I will be causing all things to work together for good. If you've asked of me, do you think you can trust me when I tell you, therefore go do unto them? They say, that's where faith comes in. Do I trust Him? Now that I trust Him, faith is rising because of prayer over the Word, over the promise. I know my future's taken care of. There's something that comes more naturally from that, that, who, oh, I can help take care of that other person's need right now. So the conclusion to that long second point is that to whatever degree we find this work of the Holy Spirit producing the fruit of love, it is always owing to faith. Those are the first two. Love is fulfilling the law. And that love comes from this dynamic going on in one's life, walking by, trusting in God's promises, which leads to the third step, and that's this. Therefore, when God gave the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments through Moses, they were always calling for faith. In other words, they were always calling for us to walk in love, which can only be done by walking in faith. Therefore, they're always calling for faith. If love is what the law ultimately is aiming at and faith is the only way to truly walk in the love, God is talking about overflowing from a relationship with Him vertically to others then the law of Moses was always calling for a response of faith in the heart and not a response of meritorious works. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 9 verses 30 to 32 where the Apostle Paul, I do not know how to give you a clearer text of Scripture to say, Exactly what I have been saying the last 30 minutes. Starting with verse 30, Romans 9, here's the Apostle Paul. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Note, that question why is not mine. It's in the Bible. It's Paul's. Why, Paul? He answers it. Because they did not pursue the law of Moses by faith. But, as if it were based on works. Go back and read it slowly again. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That non-Jews, the Gentiles, who do not have the books of Moses, don't have the Old Testament, they weren't looking for righteousness with the one true God. They're pagans. They're worshiping Greek gods and Roman gods. or no? They don't care. On the one hand, right? No. Flashback to Jesus' ministry. The Jews, they're caring. The Pharisees care. They're pursuing some type of a righteousness. We tithe meal cumin in. They care. That's what he's saying. Gentiles, they're not even looking for being justified for being right with God, this righteousness with God. They're not looking for it. Then, the Gospel goes out to all of them and preaches the Gospel of faith in Christ. And all over the way, boom, 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 boom. They're popping. They're coming to faith and thus they're being made righteous. Justification by faith. And then, But all along, for hundreds of years, the Jews are pursuing it religiously. And they have the right book and they're not getting it. Why? That's what he says. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But, and here are the two key words, this one little phrase, you can see it in English, and it's there in the Greek, as if, which means it never was meant to be pursued by the way Paul means works of merit as if it were by works. That shows clearly the Apostle Paul's understanding of the Mosaic Covenant is that he did not believe it was ever intended to be obeyed from a motivation of earning anything. Or the way he says it here, by works. If you try To use, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Honor your father and mother. Keep the Sabbath holy. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. If you try to use God's commandments as a job description in order to show your worth, in order to earn His favor, you will be doing by definition something that the law itself, Hoses. Not keeping the law itself is against the works of the law, it never commanded anyone to merit anything, it only commanded us to trust the commander, and they're utterly different. The law is based on faith in God's promises, not on meritorious works. In Romans 9, 30-32, the mistake that Israel made as a whole was not that they pursued the law of Moses. The mistake is that they pursued it in the wrong way. With a wrong motivation, a wrong heart they thus missed the whole thing. And that's why the law, which pointed to Christ constantly, when he came, as he's going to say in the next verse, they stumbled over Jesus. They couldn't see him. For who he was, as all. That's Paul's meaning. That's what Paul thinks of the Mosaic Law. Let's go to the law itself. Because see, if Paul is like totally reinterpreting and reading into the Scripture, something that was never there, I think we're in big trouble. So we turn back to the book of Exodus. Remember, we've seen this last few, God on purpose delivered Israel He wanted to deliver them with ten plagues, etc., and through the Red Sea. That's how He wanted He wanted to demonstrate His power, His miraculous working, saving, delivering power. Why? So that He can kind of say, now do you trust Me? Do you see who I am? Trust Me. Listen to how Exodus 14:31 says what I just said. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And so when the 10 commandments themselves begin with quote I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? You shall have no other gods before me. That's the preface of the Ten Commandments. What are you saying? Do you remember? Do you remember? Okay, therefore go on trusting me now. That's the logic of the law. You don't need any other gods. Don't have any other gods before me. There are no other true gods. Trust me, Israel. So the Ten Commandments, as He gets them now, are based on that faith. The exodus, deliverance from Egypt, is the foundation. He's calling for faith in the hearts of His people, Israel. Just like the New Testament's moral commandments are flowing out of, based on, the exodus of the cross in the resurrection. Did you wake up and find yourself a believer one day? If you didn't, you're not a believer yet. But if you are a believer, you know that He died for me. That's the foundation of the rest of your life. Which is on grace. Beckoning, trust Me. Trust Me. Don't commit adultery. Trust Me. Don't steal. Trust Me. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Trust me. That's the foundation not only of the New Testament moral commandments, but it has always been the foundation of the Old Testament moral commandments. The meaning of the sign of the Exodus is like the meaning of the sign of the resurrection of Christ. The foundation of trust me. The commands were always causing, calling for confidence in the God of the resurrection of the Exodus. Go on. Trust Him. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 29 to 32. See how the law itself talks. See how Moses, what he says here, is towards the end of after the exodus and then the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, Moses recounts why and what happened, starting with verse 29. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them, the enemies are supposed to conquer, the Lord your God who goes before you, trust Him, He will Himself fight for you. Just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. See it? Future. You can go. God's going to fight. Oh, you need some security for that? Do you remember Egypt? You think he's going to fight tomorrow for you? Do you remember the cross? Do you remember the resurrection, Christian? just as He did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness for 40 years where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you. As a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place right before the Jordan River, yet in spite of this word, you did not. Here's the problem. You did not. Trust the Lord your God. You did not believe the Lord your God. The exodus was a sign. This is the God who promises. This is the God who directs you with commands. You can trust Him. That exodus is the foundation of Israel's faith. And thus the law. God commanding how to live. And what to do was always based on that faith, heart of faith. The law of Moses simply spells out what Israel would look like when it is trusting Him with a heart of faith. In other words, when it genuinely feels secure in God, it looks like, and then just list the commandments... You do not steal if you trust your secure past, present, and future in God's hands. You do not abuse other people for your own gain by bearing false witness against them or by murdering them or by seducing their spouse if you truly are trusting in God's security for your life and your future the one who commands you. That's why they they've always been beckoning for a heart of faith. If you really believe in the God of the Exodus, the God of the Resurrection, then to that extent, at that given moment on your Wednesday morning, you will obey. Or to that extent, we will allow our flesh sinful desires to supersede faith and thus sin against God and against others. All the sins of breaking the Ten Commandments and all the other moral commandments flow from a heart of unbelief at that given moment. So the law, here's the contention, of Moses was always a law calling for obedience of faith. Meaning obedience which flows out of faith Never, ever, ever was the intended meaning of Moses and the law to call for a list of a a job description by which you, as an employee, would do your task and thus get rewarded with something from God. Never, ever, ever, which leads to point four. Therefore, yes, even we, Christian people, this side of the cross, are to keep the Old Testament law. The same way we are to keep all the commandments in the New Testament. Not in order to get God's favor that you didn't previously have the moment before. That's legalism. But because you have His favor in Christ, He's saved you, justified you by faith alone. And thus, the evidence that that faith is genuine is that it pursues that God in a battle against unbelief. The flesh, constantly, throughout the rest of its life. So you go on loving the New Testament moral commands, which are all over the place, as much as you love the Ten Commandments, with a heart of faith. Because faith will spring up and realize that commandment means God is really beckoning me to real joy, real happiness, real fulfillment. And faith believes that. And when it doesn't believe it, we go ahead and break that commandment. Now, I could do a whole sermon on this. I thought about it. I'm not, I'm not planning on doing it now. The ceremonial law versus the moral law. So just real briefly. Yes, there are a lot of laws in the Old Testament. There's the sacrificial laws. What kind of animals? What kind of grains? What kind of libations to make offerings in different times And the whole sacrificial system? We are not bound to keep that whatsoever because it pointed to Jesus Christ the Lamb of God the high priest etc once he has come that has been fulfilled meaning there is now no more need to do that here on this planet Earth because it was meant to picture the perfect one the real sacrifice who was to come he has come then there were cocooning laws you know how little caterpillar gets into a cocoon I mean it that way. The laws which were meant for Israel, for the Jews, in order to make them a distinct people. The circumcision law, the dietary laws, the festivals that made Israel a separate people who would not mix and mingle but would remain separate. God gives them these laws. When I say... Cocooning in cultural laws, I mean that every one of those laws, that if you think about it in and of itself, there's no moral implication. Whether you eat a pig or a lobster has no morality in and of itself. Now, it would if God said, I want you to not eat that, but I mean in and of itself. Whereas, laws like, do not walk up beside an innocent person and swing a baseball bat and take their head off. Called murder. That has moral implications in and of itself. Stealing, thievery, covetousness, etc., all do. Those other laws that just made them distinct fall away in the gospel. But the vast portion of laws. In Moses are moral laws. And even the law of Moses itself makes distinctions between these non-universal moral laws It says this is just for you. If you get a visitor that comes to your land, they're not bound to keep it, blah, blah, blah. Then the moral laws, ooh, it doesn't matter. Anyone who comes to live in your house, live in your land Israel, this law applies to everybody, Jew or Gentile. And so as I'm going to close, I'm going to come back to law again next week. I think that makes you happy or I don't know. I think there's more to say. But the Apostle Paul, here's, in a nutshell, we're going to be leading a little bit next week to ask larger questions on the redemptive timeline. Why is God doing it this way? Are there any clues in Scripture? But Paul saw, and we should see, that the law of Moses... Written down now on pages cannot save you. I'm going to go here next week. Neither can the words of Jesus. Neither do the words that you preach to an unbeliever and tell them the gospel. In and of themselves, they can't save. They're necessary. But only God the Holy Spirit will bring people to saving faith. Paul saw that the law, which is holy, it's righteous, it's good, there's nothing wrong with it. It always called for faith. That was his intention. But the law itself couldn't make you believe. And that's why it just condemned the vast majority. For instance, Romans chapter 8, listen to how Paul said it. This is what he means by the letter kills. And it does. If you just have the letter of the law, you just know, I know what God said, and that's and you're left to yourself, you're, it's over. You're dead. You're, you're, it's over. You can't do it. It's impossible. Trying to make that point earlier. Love is impossible. Apart from regeneration. Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What could the law not do? That is, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, not in Christ here, that's another subject, but might be being fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the Apostle Paul teaches that Christian people are not a lawless people. We are a people who are being sanctified. A people, in other words, who are experiencing the fulfilling of the law by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith. And Paul says, you want to know what it looks like? Turn to Galatians 5. It looks like this, these people are people because of the work of the Spirit, and thus fighting the fight to trust in His promises, are not giving in constantly, over and over, without a battle, to the works of the flesh, which are the breaking of the commandments all over the place. But instead, what is going on is that there is fruit by the Holy Spirit being born in them and through them. And so, that's why we Christian people who have been justified like Abraham and like Moses and like David by faith alone who now are indwelt by the Spirit can open up the book of Psalms and know that that's a brother praying on our behalf the way we ought to even think and pray today. For instance, as I close, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise The simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Father, my deepest plea is that you would first cause within the minds and in the hearts of everyone here. An acknowledgement of the importance and the desperateness to know why this subject is really crucial to understand. And then, by Your grace, help us grow in our understanding of gospel and law of the gospel of justification by faith alone, which is distinct and separate, but distinct but never ultimately separate from the work of sanctification that happens in everyone who is justified. Oh, may these thoughts, contemplations, be the thoughts and the contemplations of every heart in here, that we may find the work of the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit through our faith to grow more and more. To the glory of Your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen.